There are two things human beings struggle with that uh, are constant struggles for us. Uh, We struggle with authority and ability. And we want to be our own authority in life, but we quickly realize we don't have the ability to do what only God can do. And we clearly know that it is not only people like Tiger Woods who have trouble um, being humble and, and humbling themselves and admitting they need help. Uh, today we're going to look at Christ's Love in Action, Episode 2, and what I hope you see is that Christ's authority as Lord and His ability as God takes the pressure off of us, and we can rest in Him, we can, we can do what we're called to do, which is cooperate with Him. So we're reading Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13, and uh, let's just do that. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we can come here today. Thank you, Lord, that we could read your word. And Lord, we trust you. We trust you that you will touch our hearts today and change us by your word. And then we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are not worthy, but God is. We are not able, but God is. In Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we are seeing Christ's qualification as Messiah through His power and authority as God. Now these two chapters, as I mentioned last week, contain nine miracles in three groups separated by two discussions on discipleship. The first set of miracles contains miracles of healing. Last week we saw the leper, this week the centurion's servant, next week Peter's mother-in-law. The second group uh, include miracles of power over things like nature and demons. And the third, miracles of restoration of life and sight and speech. Now, as we're looking at these miracles, it's important to see them in context. This is a collection of miracle stories that that the Holy Spirit had Matthew um, set in this order. But they're not necessarily chronological. If you do a harmony of the Gospels, you would see that. 
But logically, they're inserted to make the point that Matthew is making. That Jesus is Lord, that he is the king, and that he has authority over all of life. That's the point that he's making. Now, the basic ingredients of these miracle stories form a sort of pattern that you can see. And the first is there is always a basic need expressed. Someone comes to Jesus with a need. And then they make a request. They ask for something. They seek his help. The third thing that happens is they express some kind of faith or obedience to Jesus. And the next thing is that Jesus then performs a miracle. He does something that they cannot do. He does something that only God can do. And then there is a response. The pattern kind of closes with a response to Jesus or to the miracle. So it's pretty simple. Okay, you got the need, the request, faith or obedience being expressed, a miracle happening, and then the response to the miracle or the response to Jesus. Now, once you see that type of pattern, you can really look at each one of these miracle stories with a view toward what each one says about Jesus, what it says about God, but also what it says about us and our response to Jesus and in our relationship with him. Now, if we assume that the miracles of Jesus teach us something about the kingdom of God, uh, its power, spiritual battles that are associated with it, um, other specific things regarding following Jesus as Lord and King, then we can see in them more than just a miraculous occurrence, more than just something amazing that God did, but we can also see in them something about, about God and something about our response to him. Now, the first three miracles show Jesus ministering to people that were marginalized in society. Uh, today, you've got to look for that a bit, but it's not hard to find. But last week, we looked at that first miracle that Jesus was healing the leper. And the leper was too desperate to care what anyone else thought or anyone else said. Now, in that culture, he had no right to be around. He had no standing. He had no worth. But he came to Jesus boldly, and he had confidence in Christ's ability to help him, to heal him. He came to him reverently. He worshipped him. He found his way to him. And it was a revolting scene to a lot of people, but he offered him worship as God. And he came humbly. He didn't doubt that Jesus could heal him, but he doubted if Jesus would want to due to his condition and due to just the stigma attached with being a leper. And, and Jesus was willing, and he reached out and touched him and healed him. And the man was no longer an outcast, no longer a leper. It's an amazing thing that Jesus did what no one else was willing or able to do for this man. The leper was healed. And, and Jesus met him at his point of need. And we saw in that that Jesus meets us at our point of need. But that Jesus in that setting gave life to one who was as good as dead. Dead man walking. Now today, we see the second miracle, and it's Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And first, in this, in this account, we see a soldier. We see a soldier. Verse 5. He enters Capernaum. Second time, Matthew has him entering Capernaum. And a centurion came forward to him. Now, you can see right away there is a contrast in who Jesus interacted with. Lepers were social outcasts 
Centurions were men of wealth and power. He was a man of considerable wealth and, and a considerable influence in that society. He was well spoken of. He wasn't shunned. He wasn't ostracized like the, like the leper. Now, the centurion uh, in, that, in the, that day was a soldier. And uh, the soldier in charge of over 100 foot soldiers. In the Roman army, there were different units, different um, uh, ways that they, they, they sliced and diced everything. Um, no pun intended. And, and first, there was a legion. There was 6,000 men in, in a legion, 5,300 infantry, 700 uh, cavalry. And, and then the, there, there was the legion, then there was the cohort. And the cohort was basically... Um, 600 men there were uh, there were each legion had six uh, excuse me 10 cohorts so 600 men was a cohort and then each cohort had six centuries uh, groups of of 100 men each now the century was the smallest smallest unit in the in the roman army and they were commanded by a centurion okay and the centurion was a long-term professional officer soldier and they were always promoted through the ranks. First they were, you know, in just amongst them. And then they were promoted up. And they were basically taking the best of the best. Uh, you would not be a centurion if you were lazy or if you were not able to lead or something like that. And um, they, were, they were in charge of the discipline of the regiment. They were the glue that held the Roman army together. They were the backbone of the Roman army. And every centurion, this is interesting, every centurion mentioned in the New Testament is mentioned in a positive light. Always portrayed and spoken well of. There was the centurion that recognized Jesus on the cross as the Son of God. You see it in Matthew 27. There was Cornelius. Remember Cornelius? The first Gentile convert to Christianity. There was the the centurion that discovered Paul was a Roman citizen and rescued him from the rioting crowds. There was a centurion that found out that the Jews were plotting to kill Paul and then rescued him and protected him. There was the centurion that went with Paul on his last trip to Rome, showed him every kindness, treated him well, followed his leadership when the storm uh, struck the, the ship that they were on. But centurions were promoted through the ranks they were at times paid as much as 15 times more than an average soldier. They, they got more of the spoils of war, things like that. They, excavations have shown in recent years that centurions, and there was an outpost in Capernaum, that centurions had better housing than the general population. They even had a Roman bath at their disposal in that day. And um, their word was law. When a centurion spoke, you listened because the strength of Rome was behind him. But they were men of integrity. They were men that were trusted. And, and if you think about it, in a way, both extremes of the social structure of that day were represented because the first person that Jesus healed was a leper. And the classic outsider, barred from participating in Israel's worship and the social life, and the second person was a man of wealth and power 
But he was also another classic outsider because he was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was provisionally barred from Israel's inner life as a Gentile. Lepers could not enter Jerusalem at all. Gentiles could, but could go no further into the temple than the court of the Gentiles. Now in that day, only a leper was considered more unclean than a Gentile. Jews were not to enter the house of a Gentile. They would, they would become unclean. You know, if a leper came into your house, your house would become unclean. If you went into the house of a Gentile, you would become unclean. So no one was considered more unclean than a leper, but next in line were the Gentiles. So Jesus, even though this man was powerful and wealthy, was still ministering in some way to the marginalized, but even more was who he healed. Even more so. He healed his servant. In fact, uh, there's something very significant about this, this centurion. Um, something significantly different about him than, than others would have been in that day. And it was that he cared for his servant. That he cared so much for his servant. See, verse 5 says that uh, he came forward to Jesus appealing to him. He's putting himself, here's this powerful man, putting himself under Jesus in a sense and coming to him and making an appeal. That's an interesting thing. Centurions didn't make appeals. <laughs> they gave commands and you followed. Like he said, I say go and he goes. I say come and he comes. He didn't make appeals. And here he goes and makes an appeal to Jesus and verse six, here's what he says. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. See, he was unlike other people in those days who treated their servants with contempt, treated them like the possessions that they were thought to be. He had an amazing attitude toward his servant. He was resolute in his aim to do whatever he could in his power for his servant who was sick. It's strange. It, it, this didn't happen in those days. He loved his servant. And we also see something else about this, this centurion. He was a man of faith. He wanted Jesus to heal and help his servant. And so he makes a faith-based request. And really embedded in verse 6 is the request, though we, we don't see it as a request, but more of a statement Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering ter terribly. He's asking Jesus to do something. He's appealing to him. He's, it's like your kids come to you, and your kids, you go to your mom and dad, and you say, uh, Mommy, Daddy, can, may I have? You know, Savannah had this way of, um, of doing that when, when she was a bit younger. She's still young. She's only nine. But she would come up and say, Ice cream is good. <laughs> People like ice cream. We'd say, would you like some? Yeah. Lord, my, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. There is a request embedded in this statement. It's a faith-based request. Now, Jesus says in verse 7, I will come and heal him. Now, some scholars think that that was a question. That Jesus was saying to him, am I supposed to come and heal him? To try to find out really what was behind the request find out what faith uh, make the guy you know uh, reveal the faith that jesus knew he had 
A lot of people just think it's a, it's a, it's a statement of, I'm going to go and heal him. Whatever the case, Jesus says this, and here's what the centurion says. I'm not worthy. So you see, he's a humble man. Not just a, faith, a man of faith, but a humble man as well. He says, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Well, you only say the word, my servant will be healed. Wow. Now, notice what he did. He called Jesus Lord. And some would say, well, that was just a, a sign of respect. But in this context, and what he did, and how he, and how he did it, he is recognizing who Jesus was. He says in verse 9, to Jesus. Now remember, he's talking to Jesus. And he says, I too am a man under authority. I'm a man under authority with people under me. Whose authority was he under? The authority of the Roman emperor. Huge. When he spoke, he had the full strength of Rome behind him. Of course you were going to do what a centurion told you to do. When he spoke, it was as if the emperor spoke. This is an important part here. So great was his power, so solid was the strength of Rome and the Roman army and the backing of the Roman Empire that his word was obeyed because of it. When he spoke, it was as if the emperor of Rome was speaking. This powerful man who was used to giving orders to other people recognized Jesus' authority. He says, I too am a man under authority. He even, he even puts himself under Jesus there. I also am a man under authority. He's, he's seen Jesus' authority as greater. He understood when Jesus spoke, it was as if God was speaking. In fact, it was God speaking. When Jesus spoke, he understood that he was speaking with God's authority. See, the centurion made the connection very, very quickly because he knew what it was like for him. And he saw it in Jesus. And so when Jesus spoke, it was God speaking. And he believed, the centurion believed, that Jesus' words were God's words. Verse 10, Jesus marvels. You don't see God marveling very often. You see people marveling at Jesus. You don't see Jesus marveling, being astonished. Now, he knew it was there. But there is this, this idea that Jesus is saying, you know what's so astonishing about this? That your faith is so huge, so great, so strong, so, so significant, and you're not a Jew. You went to the Jewish Messiah, the Gentile, unclean. And Jesus says in verse 10, he says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The ones that were supposed to have it didn't have it. The ones that everybody thought was rejected from it did. At least this one did. More than in all Israel, this man had great faith. Centurion. Now the second part of, of, the, of the story, and the second person that's really... that's really significant here is the servant the servant by the way you'll you'll notice right away something significant about him he didn't do anything (laughs) he didn't do anything he was just at home sick terribly sick in pain 
suffering. Um, a lot of scholars think he had polio, just based on the, the, the description here. Paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Whatever the case, you'll notice he didn't do anything. Someone else acted on his behalf. He received God's blessing due to the request of others to God. The centurion went to God on his behalf. It, 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 it really points up this idea of intercessory prayer where we go to God on behalf of someone else. When we bring someone else's needs to the throne of grace. When, when, we, when we lift our brother or our sister or our mother or our father, whoever, to, to Jesus and say, help them. Heal them. Going to God on behalf of others. Praying for them. Bringing their needs up to God. Appealing to God on their behalf. Now the servant had a very low place in society. The servant was not worth much to people. Even less than you'd think. In the Roman Empire, slaves were things. They were possessions. They did not matter. No one cared whether they suffered. No one cared whether they lived or died. Aristotle said this. He said, There can be no friendship or justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even toward a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave, Aristotle said, is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. A slave was no better to people than a thing. They weren't a person in the eyes of people. It makes us sad, but it, it was true. They had no legal rights whatsoever in that culture. No legal rights whatsoever. When you think about how Jesus raised the level of women and children and slaves and, and people that were marginalized, it's huge. So they had no legal rights. Um, the, the Roman legal expert uh, Gaius said this. He said, We may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. See, the only difference, this is a sad one, but the only difference in people's minds between a slave and an animal was that the slave could speak. That's it. That's it. So it was shocking that this centurion would want to go to Jesus on his behalf. That he would be so concerned. Shocking. See, this slave was cherished by his master. Not the normal attitude of master to slave. Uh, he, unlike others, was not treated with contempt. Not treated like a possession. But he was treated more like a son. Very interesting that the, the word here, um, uh, the Greek word uh, for servant here, can also be translated son. Now, in the parallel passage in, in Luke, you, you see in Luke 7 you see the, the word we would know of as servant, which is doulos in Greek. But here, um, pious is the word that, that Matthew uses, and it could mean son. It can be translated son at times. He was treating his own servant as, as, a, as, a, as someone who would be more of an heir, someone who would have an inheritance. It's huge. Now, this man was suffering greatly. 
He was sick. He was paralyzed at home, suffering greatly. And again, some scholars think he had polio. And God healed him. God healed him. Verse 13. Jesus said to the centurion, go, interesting, go. Remember what the centurion said to Jesus? Hey, I'm under authority too, and I say to one, go. I give orders, and so do you. So I want you to give the order, please, give the order for my servant to be healed. So Jesus does. He says, go, uses the same word. I love it. He gives the centurion an order. Centurions didn't take orders, you know, they're they're higher-ups. And um, Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. There's faith there. And the servant was healed that very moment, at that instant. The servant was healed. It's a, it's a long-distance, instantaneous healing, not common. Some people, very few in those days, claimed to have that power. But no one but God could do that. But it's, it's significant. That very moment, he was healed. That very moment. Very rare, <laughs> For that to happen. And uh, you usually, even when you see Jesus doing these miracles, he's, he's right there with the person. He's touching a leper. But here, long distance healing. Instantaneous. So, there you have the servant. So first we saw a soldier. Then you see a servant. Um, but we also see sons. And again, they're not, they're just referred to. They're not right there. Well, actually, if you think about it, the cra- in the crowds, there would have been uh, both both camps here but the sons and in verses 11 and 12 here's what jesus said right after he said look i have not seen this kind of faith in anyone in israel and then in verse 11 he says i tell you he's basically when jesus says that like truly i tell you it's like listen let me let me illustrate here um many will come from east and west from all corners from from as far from far and wide many will come from east and west and recline at the table, at table, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom. Uh, this, by the way, is a classic description of hell and eternal punishment, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And... Um, no one likes to think about it, but all who do not believe, all who are not saved by grace through faith in Christ, will spend eternity there, away from the presence of God. And if you think about the whole idea of the sons here, Jesus is referring to the sons of the kingdom. Who were the sons of the kingdom that he's referring to? They're Jews that did not believe. Jews that did not believe. They thought they had favor due to their heritage. Hey, I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm in. And Jesus is saying, not so fast. (laughs) How many times has he said things like this? Not so fast. They believed that when the Messiah came, by the way, that there would be a huge banquet, a huge feast, where all the Jews would sit down and feast. But never did they think that a Gentile would get invited. Well, they should have known Isaiah 25. They should have known. They should have seen this. Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9. 
on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just Jews, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering? What is that veil? Veil? The next sentence tells us. He will swallow up death forever. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us a victory in, in Jesus Christ our Lord. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. You hear that in Revelation. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You should have known. The time would be coming. The time was now near because now Jesus was on the scene. The sons of the kingdom were Jews that did not believe. And they wouldn't sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless they believed. And so Jesus says, no, the sons of the kingdom that don't believe are going to be thrown into the outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, hell, eternal separation. Now there are also the sons of Abraham. Not listed here, but alluded to because they're the ones that will sit at table. And there are those who believe. Romans chapter 9. They are sons of God by faith. Romans chapter 9. Verses 30 and, 30 and 31 and 32. What does it tell us? What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, the rock, the stone, Jesus, will not be put to shame. The sons of Abraham, the sons of God by faith. You see it in Galatians very clearly. Galatians chapter 2. Let's go through a few verses in Galatians here. And Galatians chapter 2, start at verse 15. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. See, what Jesus is pointing to here in this setting is that those who think they're in, based on what they've done or how they've been born or whatever might not be getting in if they're not of faith, if their righteousness is not by faith. Galatians 
Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, pointing all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. It's quoting from Genesis 12. And it says, to your offspring, who is Christ. It's pointing forward to Christ when, when, when the promise of justification by faith was made to Abraham. Verse 26, Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's interesting, you go back to chapter 3 of Galatians, and verse 8 says this, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The scriptures, God's holy word, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the believer, the man of faith. This is huge for anyone who is not a Jew. It's huge for anyone who is, by the way, as well. Going back, uh, in, in, going forward in Galatians, go to Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of the time had come, remember we're talking about sons of God by faith, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. No longer without worth, but now cherished, now highly valued. And then an heir through God. All who believe are God's sons by faith. And then Christ's servants, Christ and Christ's sons. Um, we don't know exactly the, the state of, the, of this Gentile centurion. But we can make an educated guess based on Jesus' words. The Gentile centurion was not a son of the kingdom, one of the Jews that did not believe, but seems to be a son of God by faith because he was trusting the Messiah for this need. That his faith was evidenced by his words and actions, but his faith, was clear, and that's why Jesus said there was much faith here in, on your part, and, and be it done to you as you have believed. He was a man of faith. Now, as we consider this, this second miracle here, that Jesus healing the centurion servant from a distance, there's some lessons for us today. Um, and they're simple, but they're also profound. And there's two I'll point out. The first is, is just the idea of humility. The idea of humility. The centurion as a servant of God considered himself unworthy. Considered himself uh, not worthy for Jesus to come into his own home to help him. And, and here's an interesting one too. Um, just to show once again, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So where was the servant lying paralyzed and in pain? In his home. Now, 
He was humble before God. He was humble before man. This man who was over others put himself under Christ. And then he was able to treat someone who was considered so worthless, his servant, as very valuable. That there shows extreme humility on his part. Uh, it illustrates the gospel truth that in Christ's church, people get along inside the church who would never get along outside of it. People mix inside Christ's church who would never mix outside the church. And like the centurion, we find ourselves considering ourselves unworthy of God's grace based upon what we know about ourselves. I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that says this, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So humility springs from faith. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That was the heart of the centurion that day. The essence of humility is that you know who God is, you know who you are, and you know the difference between the two. You know who God is, you know who you are, and you know the difference. When we are truly humble, then we have an attitude that says, God is God and I am not, and I know how I truly am, and God knows that better than me, and I'm at his mercy. And it's not the other way around. And he is so far greater and so far higher and so far stronger and better than me. And I need him to live and do anything that pleases him. That's the heart of humility. The heart of humility says, I know I'm unworthy of his love. But also that he loves me and considers me of value. Think about how that servant must have felt when he got healed. Can you imagine? Looking his, looking his centurion boss in the eye and thanking him for going to Jesus on his behalf? Can you imagine? This man that was trash to society was valuable to his master. What happens then is that we, we consider God as being worthy of all praise. The truly humble heart considers God worthy of all praise. And then we say, I'm going to look to Him. I'm going to wait upon Him. I believe He can do and is able to do and will enable me to do what I cannot. And what you find is that you love because God first loved you. That in Christ you become overwhelmed by the fact that you are more sinful than you ever dared imagine. But at the same time, you are more valued and more significant and more accepted and more loved than you ever dreamed hope. And then we're able to see people through God's eyes with compassion, with love, with grace, with understanding. Gracious towards others because God has been gracious to us. Humility. The second lesson has to do with faith. Faith. That... that Faith drives humility. But the centurion believed that Jesus' word was sufficient to heal his servant. 
Just say the word, my servant will be healed. Just all you have to do is say it, because I know you're strong. I know. And here's the interesting thing. He believed that when Jesus spoke, that God spoke. And that his authority was God's authority. And that his word is effective because it's God's word. Therefore, he acknowledged Christ's authority as Lord. He went to him. A man that was strong and the authority over so many acknowledged Christ's authority as Lord and Christ's ability as God. And he trusted him as a result. And the servant was healed because God chose to heal him. Now, what part did the centurion's faith play in that healing? It's this, that he trusted in God's authority and ability to do it. But it was God's authority and ability that did it. Now, if you do the same, what difference will that make in your life? How, if you're trusting in Christ's authority as Lord and, and his ability to do what, what you cannot, how is that going to play out in your life? Well, let me throw out a couple of things. And they're obvious things, but you will see God at work and you will consider him your highest authority. You consider God your highest authority. You will count his word as preeminent over anything else. That God's word will be preeminent over all other words. Okay? That, that you won't be able to get enough of that word because you are so convinced that that is where life springs from, that that is where the power is as God and as His Holy Spirit applies it into our life. And then you will want to listen to Him and, and learn from Him and obey Him and follow Him and, and, and believe that you will trust Him, that you will stake your life upon Him. And that you won't passively sit and wait and say, I've been waiting for God to act. No, you'll do what the centurion did. Actively engage in the process as God leads. The centurion didn't stay home. He left his servant at home. He went and came to Jesus and made appeal and made request. He cooperated. You won't just sit back passively. You will actively engage. But then you, in that active engagement, you will wait and and trust God to act. You'll cooperate with God. The overriding governor over your life will be God's word, not your own understanding. That his, his will, not yours, will be the driving factor and the driving force. And it will be revealed in common everyday life. In all those realms that we, that we go out into on a daily basis. It'll, it'll show up in family life. It'll show up at school. It'll show up at work. It'll show up in business and pleasure and in, in church settings and in school settings and in every setting, community settings. It will show up. Anywhere people interact and make choices, your faith's gonna, gonna be evidenced in some way. It's usually pretty obvious if someone is living under God or not. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And he who comes to him must believe that he exists and is the rewarder of him who seeks him. There's active engagement in it. Well, one thing you may have noticed, and as I bring this to a close, I want to uh, point something out here. You may have noticed this, but Matthew favors a condensed style of writing. Very succinct, and he won't always give all the details that other gospel writers gave. 
which is pretty cool. You got four Gospels, and there's a lot of overlaps, and so some bring in details that others don't. You can fill in the blanks, but go with me to Luke 7, Luke chapter 7, because Luke gives more detail in this, in this story, and I want you to see this. Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that was the Sermon on the Plain there, the, kind of the parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. But he entered Capernaum. So this is the first miracle that Luke is going to be highlighting. And it says this. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. There were emissaries that went to Jesus on his behalf asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they, the Jewish leaders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and and let my servant be healed. And then the story goes on the same way. Interesting, huh? The details that Matthew hadn't brought out. Matthew's making a, a certain point here. But the details here are significant. See, the Jewish leaders say to Jesus... On the centurion's behalf, many good things they think make him worthy of Jesus helping him. Did you notice that? You know, he likes us. He treats us really nice. He built our church for us. He deserves you to help him. But the centurion knew he wasn't worthy. And Jesus made it clear, very, very clear, that faith is the only thing that mattered here. That his favor cannot be earned or bought. That the scriptures make it very clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For God's glory alone. See, the main point is this. We are unworthy and unable. Jesus is worthy and able. Without God, we're without hope. We cannot fill the God-shaped hole in our lives. And faith is a gift from God that makes us humble before Him because we know it's from Him and we are dependent upon Him for His provision, what He will do. Just like the centurion servant who didn't do anything, someone else acted on his behalf. Jesus acted on our behalf. We're coming to the table to remember that. He acted on our behalf. Jesus, the Son of God, the suffering servant, took our sin upon himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the penalty a holy God required for the sin that we were guilty of. Of his own free will, the centurion went out of his way for someone else. Someone so far beneath him in that culture but on the same level in God's eyes. He engaged in unselfish service. He loved because he was loved by God. But Jesus, doing the will of the Father, went out of his way for us. We were as good as dead. 
slave to sin, sentenced to death, in bondage to decay, destined for eternal damnation, lost, dead in sin. But Jesus. Jesus restores what sin destroys. Relationships, families, bodies, communities, careers, you name it. And we cannot clean up after ourselves, spiritually speaking. Jesus restores marred humanity that turns to him in faith to the image of God. Jesus reclaims what man discards and what man disowns. See, God did what we could not do. God bridged the gap between us and him caused by our sin. He is able to do what we cannot. 